reading is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he, and he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we stand. Father in heaven, uh, as we come now uh, to consider this reading, um, we ask that you will uh, be active in us. Uh, I, I ask that you'd, you'd save me from saying stupid things and that you would grant us to hear what your truth is. So make us discerning and make us open to nothing but you, but fully open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, and uh, it's useful, it's helpful to, if you turn back to page 7, that reading from Exodus, we're going we're, we're gonna to save the gospel reading. If, you're, if you hang out often, you'll notice that we haven't done a gospel reading yet. We're all going to say it together after the sermon. Um, but we're continuing this series uh, that we started last week in the book of Exodus. Exodus is in the Old Testament towards the beginning of the Bible, second book of the Bible, and it's just an operating system story. That What I mean by that is that you can't really understand the rest of the Bible until you understand the story of Exodus. And today, we get to get introduced to Moses a little bit. And more specifically, we get to watch Moses really, really mess up. Um, which is interesting because very often Moses is framed in a really positive light. Um, we'll get there eventually. Um, and 
in the rest of the Bible, often Moses is portrayed uh, positively, uh, and and he's portrayed positively um, uh, in you know films. Uh, do, do you remember Prince of Egypt? Right. Um, I do not recommend the film, but go enjoy it. Um, and uh, I, I, I think I think so. It was like nineteen. It was like twenty years ago, right? So probably nobody remembers it. But Val Kilmer, did you know this? Was his voice, which if you have any memory of the '90s, that's like as good as it gets in the '90s. So, um, and uh, and 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 it's kind of a swashbuckling Disney thing. And then before that, uh, which is way too long ago, there was the Ten Commandments that you know Charlton Heston, uh, who made Moses kind of look like Gandalf. Um, flowy beard, big robes, and does all kind of cool things with the staff. And, you know, these portrayals of Moses that a lot of us, that some of us will have heard, um, they make for fun movies. They have almost nothing to do, however, with Exodus. Because Exodus tells us, we find out today, that before Moses was anything special, uh, Moses was a train wreck. Moses was a train wreck and we'll never understand, we'll never grasp Exodus until we uh, see how deep his failure really goes. Exodus is not so much interested in making us think highly of Moses. Exodus wants to make us think highly of Moses as God. And therefore, in this story, Moses, or Exodus introduces Moses by front-footing his failure. Now, why does this matter for you and me? Well, uh, if you were here last week, we talked about how Exodus is a story that is designed to introduce God to Israel. And on the other hand, Exodus is a story that is designed to introduce Israel to Israel. Which another way to put that is that uh, Exodus shows us who God is on the one hand. And Exodus shows us something about who we are on the other hand. It's a mirror. And what, we've, what we find is that Moses or Exodus is going to show us a God who is both more beautiful and more alarming than we anticipate. And also we're going to find out that Exodus looks down into our hearts and shows us that we are more broken and more needy than we could ever dream. And it is precisely as Exodus brings those two realities, who is God, and look at his beauty and how alarming he is, and look at yourself and how broken down and how needy you are, it's as those two things come together that really the fullness of Exodus comes clear. And it's scary to see those two things. And if you're not scared, sometimes you haven't really seen God or you haven't seen yourself. But on the other hand, it is the doorway to joy. Um, the happiest conversation I had this week was with a gentleman. He said I could share this. A gentleman who is incarcerated. And he's been in jail for a long time. And he was telling me about how God, he's seen God work not just in spite of his failures, but somehow through his failures, God has worked. And then he said this, and this is the quote that he allowed me to say. He says, Jim, I am ecstatic about God's grace. And then he said, Jim, he said laughing, I am terrible at running my life. 
but God's great at it. And Emmanuel, I really wish that you could have heard his tone, his tone of voice. Because he said that with a joy, um, with, a, with a confidence, and with a freedom that was glorious. And it didn't have any cynicism. It wasn't like, ugh, I am terrible at running my life. There was no self-loathing. It wasn't self-pity. It was joy in someone else. It was freedom. And what I want you to see, what I wish we could taste, is that there is a special kind of joy that you only experience when God shows you the train wreck of your life and the depths of his grace at the same time. And that's where Exodus wants to take us. All right, let's get into the story. Let me set the background just a little bit. Um, the... Uh, Israel, just to catch up the story, Israel is a minority in Egypt. They've been there for a long time, hundreds of years. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, we talked about this last week, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, becomes frightened uh, about national security, and he's really, really keen for his economy to grow. And so what he does is he uh, enslaves Israel to kind of kill two birds with one stone. He wants to contain what he considers to be a threat coming from Israel, uh, but on the other hand, he wants to leverage them into uh, promoting his uh, uh, economic interests, and therefore he enslaves them. But he doesn't just enslave them. We saw last week he also attempts genocide. And he tries to kill all the uh, uh, male children in Israel. But, we saw this last week, miraculously, Moses, as a baby, escapes remarkably by being adopted uh, by Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses grows up with all the privileges of Egyptian royalty. Now, all this is from last week, but just stop there and consider the story from Israel's perspective. Moses is a Hebrew and an Israelite in Pharaoh's court. Wonderful strategy, right? Because it means that Israel and the Hebrews have a man on the inside. Right? Moses is a secret, undercover, subversive operative in the court of Pharaoh. In other words, as the story starts today, before there was Bond, there was Moses. And that's where we pick it up. Verse 11. One day, and you got to really get into the story. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. Read this like you're an Israelite. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way, and he looked that way. And seeing no one and seeing his chance, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And then I want to say, that was the beginning, but it wasn't the end. Slowly, the insurgency gathered around Moses. Isn't this what we wanted, the story we want to tell? The insurgency gathered around Moses. And then before long, they ran to the barricades and they overthrew tyrant Pharaoh. And Moses established justice for all because even the littlest hobbit can change the world. Now, I'm being silly, obviously. But I am being silly on purpose, okay? Notice the kind of story that we want to hear. We want, don't we, am I wrong? We want a story 
where the little guy beats the big, big guy because somewhere down there in the little guy, there's a spark of brilliance. And we just need to reach down inside and find that spark of brilliance. And that's probably what Moses is going to do. And that's what's going to topple Pharaoh. And it's all going to be wonderful. But that's not the story that we find when we come to Exodus. And it's important that we see that that is not the story. Because somewhere down in a lot of us, I think in part because of our culture, we come here in the United States, we are a revolutionary people. And we love telling our story about how we're, you know, whatever it might be, we're young, scrappy, and hungry, and we beat the big guy a long time ago because, let's face it, we're amazing. It's one of the mythologies we tell ourselves. And we tell that about our nation, but we also tell that basic story about us individually. We tell ourselves all the time, whatever it is that you want, you can be. Reach down into yourself, discover who you are, because down in there deep, there's a spark of brilliance, and if you reach down low inside, you can reach the sky. Something like that. And I'm saying this in terms of a caricature. But we need to understand the mythologies that we tell ourselves. And religious people tell ourselves the same story. Uh, years ago, I was given a, cr a crucifix, a cross, you know, that you wear around your neck. And on the back of the cross, engraved, so that only the person wearing it could read it, it said this. It said, Christ is counting on you. And I looked at it and I thought, uh, Jesus, if you're counting on me, you've got a big problem. Um, can you see the message that that cross was communicating? It's actually the absolute opposite of the message of the cross. It was telling me, it was whispering in my ear that somehow I'm the hero, that there's something that Jesus needs and only I can provide it. And Christians, without ever being explicit about it, think this way regularly. We think that we are going to be the hero of our own lives, or we think maybe sometimes institutionally the church is going to be the hero, and so we have these kind of triumphalistic understandings of how church ministry is supposed to happen, or sometimes the missionary is the hero, or sometimes, please don't ever do this, the pastor is the hero, and all of it is insane. And Exodus is telling us a very different story. Go back to verse 13. Because instead of a grand revolution that's swashbuckling, this happens. Verse 13, he went out the next day and behold, which always really matters, that word behold that we don't use anymore, that means in the Bible, watch this, I'm going to put this in italics. Two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the one in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the guy answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid. Now, for a minute, go into Moses' thinking. Uh, somehow, we don't know how, Moses became convinced that Egypt was the bad guy and Israel was the good guy. So he'd grown up in Egypt. Somehow he got disillusioned with the Egyptian regime that had formed him. And he comes, he, you know, he, he becomes uh, convinced that Egypt is oppressive. And, of course, he's deeply right about that. 
We saw this last week. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by his fear and by his desire. And Pharaoh's cruelty was horrible. And therefore, quite rightly, Moses wants to do something about it. But here's what he can't see. He can see the injustice, but he can't see a whole lot else. He can't see Israel's heart. What does that mean? He can see Egypt's evil and the oppression, and he sees that clearly. But what catches him off guard here is that the Hebrews, the Israelites themselves, are capable of the same kind of cruelty. Verse 13, he sees one of the Hebrews is abusing another Hebrew, and he's, he, he's flabbergasted at this. See, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and wicked. He could see that, and he could see that Egypt's heart as a regime was hardened and wicked. But it turns out that he's got to learn that it's not just a Pharaoh thing, and it's not just an Egypt thing, it's a human thing. All the groups, this is what I need you to see, all the groups in this paragraph share the same guilt in different degrees, but of the same nature. And especially Moses. Look at what he does. Moses is not pure as the driven snow. He sees an Egyptian abusing one of his people. He's rightly morally outraged by it, but what does he do? What does he do? He responds by killing him. There's no trial, there's no mercy, there's no justice. Moses is a vigilante. He is not a liberator. Moses' fear and his desire harden within his heart just like it had happened in Pharaoh's heart. Moses is not a hero. He's a moral train wreck. And his very best efforts make the whole situation worse, and he ends up becoming an ally of the evil he wants to oppose. We must see the mystery of the human heart in the book of Exodus. Moses ends up just another rival tyrant. And the, and the Hebrew whom he uh, rebukes in verse 14, he knows it. He looked, who made you a prince, Moses? He can see right through Moses. He can see Moses is just acting like Pharaoh. Remarketed. Um, one of the... Um, so we tell ourselves this mythology about um, deep down there's this spark of brilliance that's going to make everything wonderful. And, and we tell that about our nation. We tell that about the institutions we care about. We tell that about ourselves. One of the, the kind of the dark, the dark flip side of that mythology is that we often end up very disillusioned. Can you feel the disillusionment that a lot of us experience? Uh, we're disillusioned, some of us, with the church. For cause, the church is a train wreck. Not you, but um, we're, a lot of us are disillusioned with the nation. For cause, the nation is a train wreck. Many of us are dis disillusioned with our own selves. And Exodus wants to hold up a mirror so that when you look at Exodus, you see the deep root causes of some of this disillusionment. We expect brilliance in us, from us, from our institutions, from these, uh, these wonderful movements that compel us. We want them to save us. 
and then they don't, and we're broken in disillusionment. But the problem is, Exodus wants to hold up that mirror, not just for the nation and not just for the church, but for our own hearts too. And that's where it gets hard. We are train wrecks, Emmanuel. And I know we don't all believe that. And if you don't believe that, can I just encourage you to file it away because someday when the train wreck comes clear, it's going to be a really useful piece of information. All right, so Exodus wants to show us ourselves. It's kind of scary. But more deeply, Exodus wants to show us God. Uh, Moses, it, his revolution is a failure, right? What happens? He becomes a refugee. He ends up living in a tent as a Bedouin, as a shepherd. And he is totally sidelined for a lot of years in our reading. And he's sidelined in order for Exodus in verse 23 to show us and finally introduce us to the real hero. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Pharaoh's sidelined. Moses is sidelined. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to, here we go, to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Note these verbs. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So there's this mythology that tells us that we're our own heroes, right? And... and and when we're believing that, we can very often believe in God, right? We, we think we're our, we're our own heroes, but nevertheless, we want to put a, put, a, put a framework of religion around that. And usually what comes up, what happens is we, we imagine a God that's a lot like Aladdin's genie. Um, God's our sidekick. It's going to help us. It's going to help us. Of course we can't be a hero on our own. God, we need a little bit of help from God. Um, Exodus wants to debunk that whole idea, root and branch. So Israel groans. They're groaning. And they have no power in themselves. Where is God? Where is God? From their perspective, it looks like God's a long way away. But where is God in that verse? Is he distant? No, he's right up close. He's hearing. And he's listening. And he's attending to their pain. Um, parenthetically, some of us are in pain. And when you're in pain, it always feels like God's absent. And this says he's, he's listening. He's right there. Well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. Okay, fine. He's listening in on the conversation. But what's he going to do about it? Well, look at the next verb. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, and I can hear somebody saying, well, that doesn't help a lot. Is, that, is he forgetting? You know? Um, now, th this is important. When the Bible says that God remembers, it never means that he was forgetful and then he stopped being forgetful. It never means that. What it does mean is this. God remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that means he is recognizing it, honoring that promise, and preparing himself to take saving action on behalf of people who cannot save themselves. That's what it means to remember. And so the, say, the scene is being set for God to break in. 
He's listening. He's remembering. He's planning to do something. And then it says, verse 25, that God sees Israel. Now, Moses, in verse 11 and 12, he sees too. He sees one Egyptian hurting one Israelite. But that's about all that he sees. He doesn't see much. He sees one thing. And he goes to all kinds of conclusions about what he should do about it. God, on the other hand, sees much more deeply. He sees everything. He sees Israel. He sees Egypt. He sees Egypt's oppression of Israel. But he also sees Egypt's heart and Israel's heart. He sees the whole picture. He sees the train wreck of all the parties involved. Friends, none of us at any point of our life sees the whole picture. But the Lord sees the whole picture. He sees the whole picture. And that's why you can trust him. But then finally, verse 25. God knew. And I love that it ends so abruptly. It's like, what, what did he know? And of course, the answer is everything. But at least for this, God knew what he was going to do about it. And what he was going to do about it is bigger than just a political liberation. He does that. He absolutely does that. He liberates Israel from the oppression under which they were groaning because of the wicked, hard heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He liberates them politically. But that's relatively easy in the story. It takes a little while, but it's relatively easy. The bigger battle is yet to come. The bigger battle is dealing with the train wreck of Israel's heart. Get Israel, read it forward in Exodus. Get Israel out of Exodus, I mean out of Egypt. And what you find almost instantly is that Israel's heart hardens just like Pharaoh. There's a deeper liberation that has to occur. And that bigger battle ends up costing God a great deal. That bigger battle of liberating Israel from Israel's own heart ends up costing God everything. How can, God, how can anything cost God everything? Well, because a long time later, God himself personally enters the train wreck as Jesus Christ. He becomes Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes human. And Jesus Christ, fully human and fully God, is a greater hero by far than Moses. And instead of killing his enemy, Jesus allows himself to be killed by his enemies in order to liberate his enemies. And when Jesus died and rose again, he did that in order to liberate Israel and all the rest of us with them from the train wreck of a Pharaoh-like heart. And when Jesus died and rose again, he had experienced the full penalty of the train wreck that is down deep in all of us. And he experienced it in order to liberate us from it forever. And do you know what that means? For you and me, it means that the life of freedom is a life of dependence. Go back to Moses. So look at the middle bit. He runs from Pharaoh. He goes into exile. He becomes a refugee. Uh, it's a theme that goes right through the Bible. Um, God loves to use refugees for his purpose. 
and he ends up living with a priest called Reuel. And priests uh, are designed, their, their job is to kind of be a, a representative and ambassador for God. And so watch what happens. God sidelines Moses, and the way he sidelines Moses is he sends them out to spend years and years living dependently on a man who is supposed to represent God. Or put differently, Moses, living in the tent, learned to live by grace alone. Not self-sufficiency, that ends in train wrecks. Moses lives as a sojourner. In fact, he names his firstborn son Sojourner. Refugee. Someone who lives by the hospitality and grace of another. He's learning to live not self-sufficiently, but dependently. And you notice, the minute, he doesn't even hardly learn the lesson, the minute Moses is no longer self-sufficient, that's the first moment he actually becomes useful in rescuing somebody. He helps rescue Rael's daughters. So, Moses, relying on himself, train wreck. Moses, relying on God, he becomes useful to God's plan of liberation. And that theme runs right the way through. Later on, God will take Israel out of Egypt and straight into the exact same desert that Moses lived in. Why? To, tell them the, to teach them the exact same lesson. To live not self-sufficiently, but to live relying on him moment by moment and breath by breath. And later on, a long time later, after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the desert again. And there he's tempted to rely upon himself, but he quotes the Bible from Israel's sojourning in exile. And he says, I am going to live by the word of God alone. And not self-sufficiently. Do you see how the Bible is trying to debunk and undermine the whole mythology of self-sufficiency? And friends, it's real. Um, the happiest man I talked to this week is in jail. And let me tell you, the circumstances are not pleasant. And yet he can laugh with the laugh of freedom. And the reason is he knows that he's terrible at running his own life, he says with a laugh. And that Jesus is great at it. He takes refuge in the tent of humility. He's exiled in the happy home of dependence. And that's where the Lord wants to take us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we're going to say these words in a minute. Mary, the mother of Jesus, says that God throws down the mighty from their thrones and he exalts the humble and meek. And in saying that, and in her song, she was summarizing the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. This is who God is, and this is what it means to be free. And so Emmanuel Exodus is going to throw us off all our thrones, all of them. Even the ones that you think, ah, no, that one I can keep. Nope, it's going to go too. But he only does it in order to exalt us from the place of humility. So, stop believing the mythology of self-sufficiency. Groan like Israel. 
because of the train wreck that is deep down in our souls and that we're so good at camouflaging. Groan under it and cry out to God for rescue. And then you will meet the God. The God who hears and the God who remembers. The God who sees and the God who knows precisely how to set you free. And in response, let's stand. Page nine, we're going to proclaim the gospel together in the words that Mary, the mother of Jesus, composed, responding to the Lord of all the scriptures. We say together, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he that is mighty has magnified me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him throughout all generations. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the humble and meek. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, has helped his servant Israel, as he promised to our fathers, Abraham and his seed forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.